0: Welcome to Dunzo. This is a podcast that explores hookups and breakups of famous lovers and friends, both real and fake, and all the discarded pop culture of yesteryear. I'm your host, Troy McKeady. You guys, welcome to episode 144 of Dunzo. It is me, Sissy Houston, and we today are finally delving into the relationship of it all uh, with Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown and Robin Crawford. Um, I have to tell you, I've never been so unstressed about an episode in my life or about like a series or whatever that you would call this in my life. I've never been so unstressed and unbothered by a couple in my life. I don't think I've ever enjoyed and I'm going to include Brittany in that because that's stressful for me. Uh, I've never enjoyed research as much as I'm enjoying it right now. <clears throat> I've never enjoyed taking notes as much as I'm enjoying it at the moment. This is such a... I can't even explain the stress relief that this is for me. It's like I have to stop myself from like taking for literally taking 40 pages of notes because i'm so into it i just i love whitney houston <laughs> if i haven't made that clear in the past two weeks i am infatuated by whitney houston and being in a situation where you have to watch whitney houston from like the 70s to like the mid 90s perform constantly is truly self-care it is self-care it is therapy it is the most positive thing I've probably done in months. Um, and yeah, today's the day that we're finally discussing these two sort of as a pair. You guys have very patiently waited two weeks and sat through two full, like, full episodes of housekeeping. Really, if you if you if you want me to be honest with you, those were full blown housekeeping episodes. So you deserve this. We are doing '90s Whitney and Bobby today and uh obviously like i said we're going to be delving uh into her relationship with Robin a little bit deeper. Um we're going to be getting into you know when things with Bobby really start to kind of take a dark turn for the worst in their relationship. Um when drugs sort of go from being like a fun recreational thing that they do together to becoming something that Whitney is dependent on. We're going to be talking about the fucking bodyguard today we're going to be talking about the birth of Bobby Christina. Like it's this today is a very big day. I also just want to apologize for this episode being a day late. Um thank you guys for being so cool about me releasing it a little bit late. It's just, you know, as not stressful as it is, it doesn't uh it doesn't mean that it's not at times overwhelming. I mean, it's Whitney Houston and Bobby fucking Brown, especially the 90s. Like the 80s is just sort of fun, you know, let's reminisce about when Whitney Houston used to snap her fingers and put Bretts in her hair. But now it's like we're getting into like bodyguard era Whitney Houston. That's that's a whole nother like world. And one of the things that I left out of the first episode that I really wanted to talk about today was the fact that Whitney and Bobby were both known to have been with people outside of their marriage and outside of their relationship prior to meeting, not including Robin. Um, Bobby was very famously in love with Janet Jackson. I mentioned this on Instagram. I was like, oh my God, I forgot to mention that Bobby Brown, like, was madly in love with Janet Jackson. And when the press picked up on it, it became, you know, something that he was asked about constantly. Uh, Apparently, he was like, you know, showering Janet Jackson with gifts and telling her that he loved her as soon as he met her, um, they sort of dated, I think that Janet just wanted to have sex with Bobby Brown, respectfully, um, so she, like, turned him down, but was also fucking him, and, uh, Bobby has said many times throughout the years that he thinks Janet wasn't in love with him because his skin was too dark, um, According to the Bobby Brown story that aired on BET a couple years ago, he actually kicked her out of his hotel room one night after sex in a rage because she told him that she wasn't in love with him. And Whitney also dated around. She was linked to Eddie Murphy for a while. Uh, Eddie very famously told Whitney that Bobby was not good enough for her. He was pretty open about the fact that he was opposed to their marriage Um, she dated a football player named Randall Cunningham and uh, Robert De Niro very famously chased Whitney all over Hollywood and would do psychotic things like find out where she was staying and send cars for her to come have sex with him and she would always turn it down or decline it um he would like you know call find out what hotel she was staying in and call her at three in the morning and ask her to get dinner and she'd be like what the fuck um and according to Robin I think Robin wrote in her book that she let him down gently I think that's how she put it according to Whitney's former sister-in-law she was extremely sexual and not afraid to let people know she said that Whitney was very very open about the fact that she loved to get fucked she loved the way Bobby Brown fucked her she loved talking about it She loved talking about all the stuff he did to her body, all the stuff she would do to his, how big his dick was. She loved to brag about how great she and Bobby's sex was. Um, She was so open about it that her former sister-in-law bought her a vibrator uh, because she was afraid of how often Whitney was hooking up with different people in Hollywood, which I'm obsessed with. It literally validates everything I think about Hollywood, as you guys know, that everyone, you know that, like, at the end of the day, my feelings on Hollywood is that everybody gets high and fucks each other constantly. Because, as I've said before, I think people in Hollywood, I know people in Hollywood live, you know, they live by a different set of societal, societal rules than we do. You know, it's a sexually fluid free-for-all. Everybody is a little bit bi when the lights go down in Hollywood, in my opinion. And group sex is also always on the table. Just ask Cara Delevingne. Whitney was described as sexually fluid before that term was a thing. You know, she would hook up with men and sort of put it on display because that's, of course, what everybody expected of her and behind the scenes she would also hook up with women. And I also forgot to mention last week or the week before or whatever, that when Whitney was 18, she actually moved out of her house to live with Robin for a few years. And during that time, her parents were divorcing because her father, actually her mother had an affair and was sleeping with the preacher at their church So Whitney sort of emotionally detached from her mom because she was so heartbroken that her mom had like broken up their family. Of course, like later she found out that her dad was also cheating on her mom the whole time. They had this very broken marriage and sort of pretended to be perfect for the world to the point that it actually took people years to find out that Sissy Houston and uh, her father weren't together because they presented as you know, the, the Cosbys, they were the eighties, you know, nineties version of the Cosbys. They were the perfect, perfect black family. You know what I mean? With their prom princess daughter, uh, who was born with a gift given from God. They were perfect. I also mentioned her family's obvious disdain for Robin because not only was she this big fat burning in hell lesbian, But she was also sort of butch and black, which was terrible for the public image of a girl trying to validate every white family in America during the late 80s. And, you know, her family basically viewed Robin as this like pseudo, like they basically viewed her as like a dude because she was butch and they were ignorant. But she was this untrustworthy, you know, snake black guy to them basically who was coming in and fucking up their money train, you know? Like what I didn't realize is that her fam their her family hated Robin so much that even now, like in the docu- one of the documentaries that I've watched, is I've watched like six different Whitney Houston documentaries at this point. And in all of the ones that her family is involved in, her brothers can't even bring themselves to talk about her. Their disgust for her is so like palpable that they can't even like Michael Houston can't even say her name. He hates her. And they all view her as this like money-hungry leech, which is hilarious because she's never all of the Houstons have sold out Whitney Houston, right? All of them at some point have sold out Whitney Houston. They've done, you know, National Enquirer interviews and they've done you know, documentaries, and they've done all of these things to make money off of her. They've contemplated doing a hologram. They have sold her belongings on the internet into, you know, auction places. And they've really, really made a career out of exploiting Whitney Houston's image before and after her death. Robin, on the other hand, never really made a dime off of her. Robin never did interviews The only time Robin ever did interviews was when Whitney would ask her to be a part of something and she would just sort of sing her praises about how talented she was. But even after Whitney died, it took her like a million years to finally tell her story. And, you know, her book wasn't even exploitative. It was just honest. It was just her being like, look, to answer your, you know, 30 year long question. Yes, Whitney Houston and I were in a relationship as, you know, really young girls. And then we decided that we would be better off as friends and she got married and I respected that. You know what I mean? She never, you know, tried to get a fucking hologram set up or decided to put Whitney's daughter in a in an exploitative reality show on A&E about her being a drug addict. You know what I mean? So it's just hilarious to me. Now, what I did not mention to you last week or the week prior about Robin's involvement in Whitney Houston's life is that Whitney's father hated Robin so much that he contemplated hiring a person to, in quotes, scare her away. And this is something that Michael Houston very proudly admitted in the documentary that I watched. Like proudly was like, oh yeah, we were going to hire somebody And pay them $6,000 to break her kneecaps. They were going to hire a person to show up somewhere and shatter her kneecaps because they hated so much. That this woman, this lesbian, this big fat lesbian was the thing that kept them from really really being able to dig their their claws and hooks into her the way that they really wanted to. And this is a group of people who will never have to work again for the rest of their lives really. They've been taken care of in ways that are unimaginable. They're all on her payroll. They all have credit cards with her name on them. It's like what more could you what more could you ask for than an infinite supply of money? where the person you're stealing it from believes it is owed to you because you're family and that's what she was raised to think family is supposed to do. What more could you possibly want? But apparently there was more and Robin was the one thing, she was the only thing that kept them from really, really getting what they wanted from her, which to be honest, I, I don't know what what that could have possibly been. This story actually leaked to the National Enquirer in the 90s And the guy who was almost hired to do it said he was going to be, you know, he released the numbers. He said, I was offered $6,000. And by the way, this was a story that was just like out in the open. But because it was a gay thing and and Robin was a lesbian, it's like nobody had any sympathy for the fact that these men were going to hire somebody to um, shatter her knees to fucking Nancy Kerrigan her. And after doing all that research last week about Bobby Brown, I came to the realization, and it was, by the way, confirmed by Bobby in an interview. I thought to myself, I bet half the reason Whitney even gave Bobby Brown a chance, half the reason she gave him the time of day at the Soul Train Awards was because of the way the crowd reacted to the both of them. Like, it must have been something that sort of drew them to one another they both had the biggest crowd reactions of the night by far and on two completely opposite ends of the spectrum you had whitney who was very loudly booed and you could literally hear people in the audience screaming calling her an oreo they were saying you know she's dark on the outside but white on the inside they were screaming this shit shit, like into a recorded fucking televised award show And then you had Bobby on the complete other end who, you know, the crowd went fucking ape shit over because he was freshly out of New Edition and it was still really exciting to see, you know, Bobby Brown get on stage and own the fuck out of it. You know, Bobby being invited to an award show in itself sort of felt rebellious because Bobby was a bad boy and you never knew what he would do. So, you know... It's just crazy, like, how different their careers ended up and how much better their relationship worked when Bobby, of course, was not being completely outshined by his wife. And I know that I mentioned this at some point last week, but I really wanted to hammer home the point that Whitney and Bobby's relationship made so much sense when you think about it. Like, when you remove yourself from the situation, pretend that you don't know these people, it's like, You know, Whitney was this girl from the hood. And as I said last week or the week prior, whatever, Bobby was, you know, the guy that her parents kept her away from growing up. But as a girl who grew up in the hood, Bobby still felt very familiar to to her. And then the documentary that I watched, um, her brother Michael literally says that Bobby was a combination of all the men she grew up with. Her like egotistical, narcissistic, money hungry father, her brothers who were the life of the party and always making her laugh. And that also just so happened to have drug problems and addictions to cocaine. Um, When you look at it from a big picture perspective, Whitney and Bobby were a perfect storm. Do you know what I mean? They were a perfect storm. The only people who truly didn't get it were us because we didn't really know Whitney Houston, you know? Her family got it. Everybody in her life got it. They were all like, oh yeah, of course she fell in love with Bobby, duh. He's her brothers. Of course she did. I also think looking back, when it comes to the public perception of them and the fact that, you know, she was being presented to the world as this like perfect prom queen, I think Bobby Brown's presence in her life confirmed things that Clive Davis didn't want the country confirming, that Whitney Houston was, you know, possibly just another Black girl. She's not a special Black girl, you know? She's not a special unicorn Black girl who is sweet and docile and innocent and doe-eyed. You know, she's not the black girl we thought she was. She's just another black girl because look at her husband. She's dating Bobby Brown. It's like, we thought she was special. What happened? You know, I think it was very that for white audiences. I think it was very that for Clive where he was like, you can't have people out here thinking that you're, you know, that Whitney Houston from fucking Newark. We can tell those stories, but you're the special girl from Newark who got straight A's and left because you were better than that. You're not the Whitney Houston that dates a boy like Bobby Brown. I think you also have to take into account the fact that Whitney was always going to marry a man, you know, even it it didn't really matter how far Whitney went with her sexuality or, you know, how much more comfortable she got with it or how open she was to exploring or whatever, how fluid she was in the 90s and the 80s. She was always going to marry a man and have a family because she was raised to think that it was the right thing to do. I think Whitney Houston viewed it as the ultimate expression of happiness as a woman to marry a man who you love and who loves you back. Then you get pregnant and live happily ever after under God. You know, like that was in her mind, even even as the most famous woman in the entire world, a record breaking like pop diva superstar. That's still sort of the end game. You know, that's the goal. We are now officially leaving the 80s. We are entering the 90s. And with that comes 1990, of course. And well, I know what you're thinking. The Star-Spangled Banner, of course. It was announced on Election Day in 1990 that Whitney Houston was chosen to sing the Star-Spangled Banner at the Super Bowl. Whitney was inspired by Marvin Gaye's performance at... Uh, the NBA All-Star Game of the National Anthem, which is iconic. If you've never seen Marvin Gaye perform the National Anthem, it is like, it's literally him and like an 808 drum machine just sort of riffing and doing whatever he wants and turning the National Anthem into like a baby-making, like very sensual moment. Um, And they came up with the idea... To switch the count of the song to match the count of most gospel songs, which gave Whitney the ability to kind of dip in and out of notes and harmonize and, you know, sing like she was singing a gospel song, basically. This was also during the Persian Gulf War. So America was in one of those peak, you know, patriotic, proud to be an American moments, And what I picture in my head as someone who was too young to remember any of this in real time is that post like 9-11 consumerist patriotism, like when we all went out and bought flags after the towers fell, do you remember that was like a thing when all the flags sold out all over the country because we were so patriotic after 911 and you know the news was like reporting all the time about the flag shortage and how all the you know like the big department stores and like even um uh like convenience stores and places like walgreens were running out of the american flag because so many americans wanted to fucking feel their american oats and hang their flags, I mean, can you imagine, (laughs) it's like, in comparison to what's happening right now, can you imagine American flags selling out, because we're in such a peak, patriotic, like, bonded moment as, as a country, as George Bush is teaching all of us, uh, all of us millennials a new word, terrorist, beating it into our heads every single moment of the day, all day long, hearing the word terrorist all day. And like, you know, that's what I, that's what I picture. Like this sort of weird, um, this weird, like I said, like sort of like consumerist patriotism where everybody is united and bonded in like this very weird specific way that's like very of the time. I wrote down a quote from Babyface who was featured in the 2018 Whitney Houston documentary, which is just called Whitney and is available on Hulu. Um, He said, black people have always had a very fraught relationship to the star Spangled Banner. It's essentially a song about war and the organs of state violence in the United States have just as often been used against black people as they have been used against enemies. Whitney Houston had the radical impact of highlighting the theme of freedom and for black people, that's the most important concept that you can live by in this country. And, you know, Whitney Houston singing the Star-Spangled Banner, it's like, I couldn't do this episode without mentioning it because it's not like, it is a pop culture moment, sure, of course, it's a an iconic pop culture moment. But it's so much more than that. It's a moment of American history that people read about as... One of the most important events to take place in the 90s, especially in the early 90s. We are entering a new decade and this is how we enter by Whitney Houston basically taking the entire country and giving them like a a deep, deep, long, passionate hug. That's what it felt like. You know what I mean? It made people proud to live in America. It made people proud to be American. It was just such a different time and it really kind of set the tone for, you know, what the early 90s were going to be, basically. Whitney's rendition of the Star Spangled Banner was released as a single in February of 1991, which is like, you know, as somebody who was born in 1988, like that's just so unimaginable to me. Can you imagine? Can you imagine like Demi Lovato singing the Star Spangled Banner so well that it is released as a single. And not only that, but it charts very high. It became the highest first week chart entry at the time in history. The Star Spangled Banner. And it was the first time the Star Spangled Banner had been a a single that charted since like the early 60s. So that means the Star Spangled Banner is one of Whitney Houston's most successful singles of her catalog. Now, moving on, I just had to mention the Star Spangled Banner because it's like, if I'm talking about the highs and lows of Whitney Houston's life, I'm not gonna not mention the fact that she, like, charted. The, I I can't get over that she charted the Star Spangled Banner. I'll never get over it. Let's talk about Whitney's wedding. Let's talk about Whitney and Bobby's iconic wedding. So, originally, Whitney apparently turned down Bobby's first marriage proposal. She told Rolling Stone that it was, in quotes, not in her plans to marry him at the time. And, you know, what you also have to take into consideration is that Bobby had already gotten two other women pregnant prior to being with Whitney, another Brittany and Kevin parallel, um you know, the pop princess and America's sweetheart contractually tying herself to a man who the world collectively knew she was too good for. And, you know, as her pseudo parents, because Whitney Houston is also somebody who had a very sort of, you know, parental weird relationship with America, all we can do as her judgmental parents who only want the best for our little girl, our little prom queen is take a step back and let her live her life because she's an adult now and she makes her own decisions and she's happy. And she says he's she's happy and he makes her laugh. And, you know, she, she's telling everybody that she's very much in love and we have to respect her decision and just be there for her when, you know, when the shit inevitably hits the fan. Whitney and Bobby got married on July 18th of 1992 in the lawn of her uh, New Jersey estate. BB uh sang during the ceremony and white doves were released as they ran down the aisle. Whitney wore a $40,000 hand beaded custom made ivory satin sheer sleeved gown designed by Mark Bauer Um, She also wore this now very iconic, like beaded white headpiece that covered, you know, all of her hair. Very Liza with a Z, very Broadway baby, over the top. Um, And yeah, there were 800 people there, uh, which included Patti LaBelle, Gladys Knight, and none other than Donald Trump, because at the time he was just a tacky, fun celebrity who made appearances in movies like Home Alone 2, and uh, yeah, the guests danced all night in a purple ballroom tent set up in their yard, and uh, the following day, Whitney and Bobby honeymooned on a 140-foot yacht sailing the Mediterranean. According to Bobby, the first time he saw, now this is according to Bobby Brown, I don't know if this is true, we all know that Bobby Brown loves to fabricate and expand on stories and tell bold faced lies. Um, and he also likes to give hard truths. So you never really know what to believe when it comes to Bobby. But according to him, the first time he saw Whitney do drugs was on their wedding day. In his book, he said that they both agreed to break wedding rules and see each other beforehand. And when he walked into her room where she was getting dressed, she was hunched over a table and snorting a line of cocaine. Um, She offered him one and he claimed to have turned it down, which I, I mean, give me a break. Um, Whitney told Rolling Stone around the time that they got married, you know, Bobby and I basically come from the same place. Bobby comes from Boston out of the projects. I come from Newark out of the projects. Bobby has two very strong parents, and I have two very strong parents. I also read this really interesting Vanity Fair article from the year they got married where Whitney and Bobby were profiled during the night of Bobby's album release party. Um, his album, Don't Be Cruel, was so successful that MCA Records decided to throw a party for his uh, debut single for his next album, "Humping Around, Um, where they just like played the song on repeat for the entire night over and over while people ate Cajun popcorn and got drunk. And I have a couple really good quotes from it. On the surface, this couple seems remarkably mismatched. She's the squeaky clean pop diva in sequence. He's the B-boy from the projects who was once arrested for and fined for simulating sex on stage. She's a morning person. He gets up at two in the afternoon. She's so devoted to her two dogs, Lucy and Ethel, that she reportedly built a $75,000 house for them, a miniature version of her New Jersey mansion. He is also deathly afraid of dogs. She'll wear the same thing two days in a row, while he travels everywhere with two extra pairs of shoes in case he gets tired of the ones he has on. Even as a kid, I could never wear dirty sneakers, he says. I'd just keep going and steal a new pair. Uh, more significantly, there are the persistent rumors that Houston is gay, which he has repeatedly denied. And that Brown, Bobby Brown is a crackhead, which he has repeatedly denied. He was, however, definitely a ladies man getting girls as how I live. He once saying he has three children by two different women. I think women are God's gift to this earth. Explains Brown. I love women. Uh, Houston, who previously dated Eddie Murphy is now expecting Bobby's fourth child. It feels different this time, he says. It's different being married. Despite all the disparities, this seems to be a real relationship. Whitney and Bobby are the inverse of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Like Ginger, Bobby gives a sexual charge to the pure image of Whitney, to Whitney's Fred, while she graces him with a veneer of class. They rub off on each other professionally as well. In recent years, Houston has not sold to the black audience the way, say, Bobby Brown, Bobby Brown has. Whitney's gone through a real rough spot with her black bass, explains Ernie Singleton, president of the black music division at MCA Records. She wants to, in quotes, cross black. Being married to Bobby might help her with that. By the time he proposed last September, the tabloids had already uh, feasted on the romance. Her rumored affair with Robin Crawford was the main point of gossip. It's easy to see why conclusions were drawn. Houston and Crawford have been best friends for 15 years and are basically inseparable. Crawford counsels her on all aspects of her career, from what dress to wear to a photo shoot to how loud the vocals should sound on a particular track from The Bodyguard. They watch each other constantly. Doesn't Robin look thin? Houston will ask as she sees Crawford's reflection in the makeup mirror. Whether or not they were lovers, again, Houston denies this, their relationship is fascinating for for its fierce intensity. It's difficult to imagine anything, even Houston's marriage coming between them. Yet Crawford was the maid of honor when the couple made it legal last July. And it's just so crazy, like, the way the way the press was allowed to talk about her relationship with Robin, it's so, it's so unapologetically homophobic. It, it's so homophobic and it's completely fine because it's 1992 and it's like, well, of course you know what I mean, it couldn't possibly be that they just have an incredible friendship, no, it's strange, it's weird, nothing can come between them, even her relationship, even her marriage, they're very strange, they, they stare at you, what is, it? what is it, wait, let me go back for a second, let me go back for a second and read this insane line, they watch each other constantly, like, what the fuck does that even mean, they watch each other, <laughs> what, Okay, you guys, I am actually, I'm actually giddy with excitement. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I'm so excited to talk about this next chapter of this episode that it doesn't even bother me that I don't have the air turned on in my apartment. I'm completely fine with it. It's completely fine that my forehead is dripping in beads of sweat. It is completely fine that a bead of sweat just actually dripped down my face and into my mouth. It's fine fine. Because you know what? We're talking about the fucking bodyguard. And you know what? And you know what? I sound like Ramona Singer. You know what? The following statement will come as absolutely no surprise to you. I don't think it will shock anybody listening, but I'm just going to say it. I think about the bodyguard all the time. Yeah, I said it, The truth. I think about the bodyguard literally all the time. And it's not just because it's, you know, it's not because I love it. It's not because it's an amazing movie. It's not because it means more to my childhood than I could ever explain to you in words. It is not, uh, you know, it has nothing to do with the fact that it is, I don't know, the most successful soundtrack in history. I think about it a lot because The Bodyguard is the standard at this point at which any female pop artist who dabbles in acting hopes to achieve right like whenever i find out that a pop star is acting in a movie especially if they're acting in a movie about singing about being a singer my immediate thought is can they do it can they pull a whitney And the answer is always no, of course, nobody can pull a Whitney except for Whitney, but like, can they come close? And it's such a, I don't know, it's just such an an uninteresting sort of non-spoken rite of passage to make that decision in your career because it can be so, it can be so disastrous. (laughs) It can be so bad. For example... When you look at what glitter did to Mariah Carey, not for what it did to her, (laughs) in comparison to what A Star Is Born did for Lady Gaga, there's so much gray area and uncertainty in between, you know, especially because when you think about it, all of these movies are a version of A Star Is Born but with some, like, twist, you know? Like, Glitter is literally A Star is Born. It's the same movie. And it's actually the boldest statement that Gaga just straight up was like, I actually want to just do the, the movie. I just want to do A Star is Born. I don't want to do, like, an off-off-Broadway version of it a la Glitter. I'd rather just do A Star is Born. And the story of The Bodyguard is super interesting because... The script was actually written in the late 60s, which is something that I didn't know. I mean, I knew that there were people tied to it for a very long time, but I didn't know that it dated back that far. And it was originally supposed to star Diana Ross and Steve McQueen at some point in like the mid to late 70s, but it was shelved because they thought, you know, releasing a movie with an interracial couple would be too controversial, so they decided to not do it. It was actually Kevin Costner who suggested Whitney for the part Um, in 1992 during an interview for the film. He said, I liked her essence. I liked her elegance. When she stands up, I think if you remember the first time you ever see Whitney Houston, maybe you can't isolate where you first saw her. But some people have this thing that comes along every 10 years. When she stands up and sings, she occupies a place that I think Streisand occupies and Diana Ross used to. And apparently Kevin Costner wanted uh, Whitney Houston to play Rachel so badly that he waited an entire year while she contemplated whether or not she should take the movie. She decided to do it because she realized how once in a lifetime it was for a black woman to be offered a leading role in a movie that had nothing to do with her being a black woman. It's barely even mentioned. It is a love story between a black woman and a white guy that has nothing to do with her being a black woman and him being a white guy. And she isn't playing a slave or a maid or, you know, a repressed woman from the 50s, you know, who's being beaten or raped or not allowed to vote or whatever. She plays a confident, very sexy sort of cocky pop star who falls in love with her bodyguard. Um Kevin also said to yahoo movies.com because it was 1992, um he said this is not about race. This was about good old-fashioned chemistry. He said I kissed her once for everybody in America and then I kissed her again for myself. Uh Madonna, Olivia Newton-John, Dolly Parton, Uh, Pat Benatar and Janet Jackson were all considered for the role prior to Whitney taking it. And she told Rolling Stone during the press cycle, you know what I was really concerned about? That people would dog me out before they gave me the the opportunity to even do the job. Making the transition from a singer to an actress made me apprehensive. Like, can I really do this? I wanted to do some acting, but I mean, I never thought I'd be co-starring with Kevin Costner. I thought... I'll just get this stupid little part somewhere and I'll work my way up. And all of a sudden I get this, this script and I said, I don't know, this is kind of a big deal. So I was really scared. It took me two years to decide to do it. I kind of waited too long for Kevin. I think it got on his nerves how long it took me to decide. He called me one day and said, listen to me, Whitney, are you going to do this movie or not? I told him about my fears and he said, look, I'm scared too. I don't want to go in there and I don't want to fall. And he said, I promise you, I will not let you fall. I will help you. I will support you. And he did. And I don't know. I just think Kevin Costner and Whitney have always had a really sweet relationship. Um, Kevin Costner was at her funeral and he like gave a really, really, really touching. Uh, is it called a eulogy when you read at somebody's funeral speech? Um And yeah, I mean, I just think it's amazing. It doesn't really get spoken about enough how profound it was and how cool it was that Kevin Costner was like, no, like, I definitely want a black woman to play the lead. I definitely don't want this movie to be about race. I just want Whitney Houston to be the lead of this fucking movie. And obviously, you can't talk about the Bodyguard soundtrack without talking about, oh, you know a little ditty called I Will Always Love You, a very underground track. You may have to Google it. Of course, the original I Will Always Love You was written by Dolly Parton. It was written and performed by Dolly for Best Little Her House in Texas. And when Whitney, I love this. So when Whitney was set to record her version, Kevin Costner came up with the idea of having her sing a cappella at the start of the song. And everybody hated it. The label hated it. The producers of the movie hated it. Um, they thought, you know, it people wouldn't want to listen to a song where the beginning of it didn't have instruments. I don't know what the hell runs through executives' minds, but I really wish to God they would allow the people who make art to do the art thing. It's like, can you just shut the fuck up and punch the numbers? You know what I mean? Just shut up. Um very defensive about I Will Always Love You. Um, so Whitney recorded it. They still hated it. And it was sent to David Foster, who was the one producing the song, a.k.a. My Love. And he was blown away by it, obviously, and the rest is history. I mean, could you, Im- first of all, could you imagine the opening? First of all, I'm overwhelmed now. Could you imagine I Will Always Love You without that acapella opening? It's the best part of the song. It's the most iconic, well... It's not the most iconic part of the song, but it's just so, when you hear that note and hear, oh God, when you hear her do that run, that very first one, If I, it's iconic. And this is obviously Whitney's legacy song. She will always be known as the I Will Always Love You singer until the end of time. And this song made the soundtrack for this film so legendary that Not only is it the best-selling movie soundtrack in history, but over time, it's become, like I said earlier, it's the standard for what a movie soundtrack could be, you know what I mean? If it, like, comes close, would be amazing, but it's like, it could be this, you know, it's the pinnacle, the peak. And up until this point, we had never seen a soundtrack for a film have this amount of cultural relevance it was like everywhere you turned people were listening to the fucking bodyguard soundtrack to the point that very famously in the uk there was a trial where a person actually sued their neighbor because their neighbor was playing i will always love you so often that they took them to court and the person literally served like a year in jail for playing I Will Always Love You to the point of sending this person into like a mental lapse. It's of course broken an endless amount of records. Every prestige music publication cites it as one of the top 10 greatest songs and soundtracks of all time. In 2020, it was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Recording Registry for being culturally historically and aesthetically significant and some of my earliest and fondest childhood memories include me switching between MTV and VH1 I mean from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep at my grandmother's house because as you know my grandmother had that good good cable package as I always say And, you know, literally just sitting there like in front of the TV on my knees waiting for this video to repeat, which it inevitably would, of course, so that I could hear this song again and belt it to the literal best of my ability in my grandmother's living room (laughs) while she's like upstairs passed out with like Wheel of Fortune blaring from her TV. And just the image of Whitney pregnant, literally glowing, cherub faced in that black suit like sitting hunched over in that chair with the movie playing clips in the background which i know i've made fun of on this podcast before for being really cheesy but like when that was a thing it was a thing and it was actually very effective and when it came to this music video it just hit different i don't know it hit different it was it was much different than Mandy Moore singing I want to be with you and looking at you know images of like whoever fucking Chad Michael Murray or whatever in like a puddle it just it hit different the bodyguard set Whitney in what I always describe as that like Michael Jackson stratosphere of fame and I always use that as as the example because it perfectly describes that crossing of the line where you're no longer considered, like, a human person. You become this weird sort of almost not-human entity, not of this world. And Whitney had the added pressure of being a woman, and not only that, but being a Black woman who had no blueprint for how to navigate her fame. There was no, you know, when you look at somebody like, I don't know why I keep using Lady Gaga as an example, but, like, when you look at somebody like Gaga... As much as people don't like to admit it, I have no fucking problem, problem admitting it. As a 32 year old gay man, I have no problem admitting the fact that, yeah, it does bother me sometimes how often Lady Gaga uh, seems to borrow from Madonna. And because Madonna in her 50s is cringy, it's just okay. <laughs> like, are we going to go on a quick Lady Gaga tangent? I. I Can I just please indulge me for like one minute? That shit bothers me. You know, it bothers, like I'm I'm listening to Chromatica right now and I love it. It's so good. I love the fucking album. But every single part of it reminds me of Confessions on a Dance Floor. And every, not every part of it, but a lot of Joanne reminded me of the Madonna's music album because she went through a country western phase, you know, over 10 years ago. So it's a little annoying to me at times, but at least Lady Gaga had a blueprint for what to expect. Lady Gaga understood that she could be, you know an Italian girl from New York as she as she loves to to tell you, an Italian girl from New York City um, who embraces a gay audience and releases dance music and uh, you know leans into like innovative fashion. She knew that that would be okay because she had watched somebody do it successfully for 30 years. Whitney Houston had nobody to say, well, she did that, so it should be fine if I do it. Everything she did was trial and error. I think Whitney Houston realized during the year of the bodyguard that she could no longer go to the mall. She could no longer go to dinner. She was no longer a functioning member of society. She had officially become the Elephant Man. She was something to be gawked at. And in my opinion, the success of the movie and the success of that soundtrack and that song and the momentum at which her career was moving and the pressure of having to remain America's most non-threatening black woman of all time while you're married to a literal, like a man who was like shocked, in the town that he grew up in and learned how to sell drugs from his mom. You still need to present yourself as a prom queen. I think it really pushed her deeper and deeper and deeper into drugs like rapidly. And every Whitney documentary that I've watched mentions that around this time, you know, like post bodyguard is when things really start to spiral out of control. This is the moment that, as I always say, you would expect somebody to be like, okay, are you okay? Let's pump the brakes. Do you need help? Do you want to take some time off? Would you like to go to treatment? Is this all too much for you? Like, what do you need? You know what I mean? Do we need to pull the plug on this for a little bit? Like, what what would work best for you to not literally die? Because your love of cocaine as a party drug has very quickly escalated into something that you're now fully dependent on to get you through your days. In the 2018 documentary that I keep mentioning, her hairstylist said that, you know, Whitney didn't really understand that she had a a real drug problem until after the bodyguard because, you know, she had this sort of delayed realization of how famous that movie made her. Like she was sort of the last to know because she had been going and going and going since she was 17. So for her, it was just another successful career venture. And by this time, you know, by this point in her career, like she's so used to breaking world records and being the first to do all these things. I think it had just kind of become the norm for her. And, you know, I don't think she realized how special the bodyguard was and how much it meant to a lot of people. That is... Until she tried to leave her house after the movie premiered. And she very quickly realized that she would never be able to go to dinner with her friends again or walk around a mall, like I said, and, and not have it turn into like a secret service operation into the literal bodyguard. And as someone who's been drowning in Whitney Houston content, um I can say firsthand that bodyguard era Whitney is really it's a sad sight to behold in interviews. It's really, really sad. She looks tired. She looks drained. She looks exhausted. She seems very disenchanted. Like that light in her eyes, that thing that Whitney Houston had just a couple years prior that was so bright, that thing was so dim, And that sort of, like, Disney princess quality that she had was gone. You know, she was disenchanted. She was still beautiful, obviously, because it's fucking 90s Whitney Houston. But, I don't know, she just seemed really disenchanted by the industry and by fame and by having a bunch of money and by being married. I don't think, you know, I don't think that was everything she thought it would be. You know, nothing in her life was going the way I think she had hoped it would go. I think this was the moment that she really, really took into account how little her career had to actually do with her. How little anything she had done for the past however many years had to do with her. You know, how few decisions she was able to make on her own. And she was the only person taking care of her entire family, including all these distant relatives. So she had to keep working, even though she didn't really want to, because now she's the Houston's cash cow. Everybody's on the payroll. Everybody's working for Whitney. Her brothers and cousins literally have admitted that they were added to the payroll and weren't even working. They were just being paid hourly or whatever, to exist and be her brother. She had distant relatives who were like, you know, we won't eat unless you go on that tour and and send us a bunch of money. So she was miserable. And during the filming of that movie, Whitney and Bobby actually suffered a miscarriage, which resulted in her taking a four week break from filming And not long after um, that break is when she found out that she was pregnant with none other than Bobby Christina Brown. On March 4th of 1993, Whitney and Bobby gave birth to their first and only child together. Whitney's relationship with Bobby Christina is very complicated, obviously, and I really want to try and, you know, be as honest about it as I I can. I'm not going to like lie about how I feel about it, but I'm also... It's, like, I don't want to disrespect Whitney or Bobby Christina because it's so sad. It's, like, so... But I also think I have too much admiration for both of them to, like, disrespect them at all. If anything, I'm, like, washing their feet with my hair. Um, I don't think anybody could deny how much Whitney Houston loved her daughter. Like, that was very apparent, her, both of their entire lives, basically, um... I think being married and giving birth gave her a sense of purpose and meaning and self that her career never did. And I said before that Whitney's career, you know, obviously didn't, I don't think it belonged to her. I think she was just sort of a vessel for all these people to make money. And, you know, for her, it was like her husband and her daughter, those were things that belonged to her. They were hers. They were choices that she made in her life. They were decisions that she made. They were things that couldn't be taken from her. They were things that couldn't, on paper, be exploited. And I also think that, as a religious woman, being married and having a child made her feel closer to God. I think she felt like she was doing what she was supposed to be doing by having a kid, you know? Like, as a married woman who's capable and obsessed with Christ, like, That's sort of the gig. Now, that being said, (laughs) I also don't think Bobby Christina stood any chance at a normal or healthy life. I don't think her parents were equipped to know how to raise her properly because why the fuck would they? Why would those two people know how to raise a person? Both of them were very broken people who were carrying around. I mean, suitcases just full to the brim of demons and lies and and secrets. You know, they were both sort of drowning in industry bullshit at the time and just really like having everybody around them feed into the darkest, darkest parts of their personality. And from what I've seen and read, I think Bobby Christina spent many, many years sort of vying for her mother's attention. You know, she was raised on tour buses and in green rooms and, and at award show ceremonies and backstage at arena concert tours. She grew up almost solely around adults aside from her other siblings. But like, as a little girl, Bobby Christina spent most of her time with adults, if not all of her time. She barely had contact with other kids because she was on tour all the time. And her parents were wealthy drug addicts. Oh, God. Um, In the documentary, they also confirmed that Whitney would go, you know, months and months without seeing Bobby Christina. And there's this moment where she describes what it's like for them to say goodbye to each other because... Bobby Christina doesn't understand why her mom isn't in her life. And it's like, just really sad, you know? And it's really sad to see Whitney talk about it because all of it is so, she's, it's all so against her will. And if she had it her way, again, her life parallels Brit parallels Britney's in ways that are unimaginable. It's very weird. But if she had it her way for so many years, she would have just spent that time with her child, you know? But she couldn't because she, had a bunch of drug addict leeches manipulating her into working more and more and more, just running her into the fucking ground. And if you know anything about Bobby and Whitney as parents, you know that they loved, they loved nothing more than to show off their daughter in whatever form they could. If that meant bringing her on stage at an award show or you know, having her show up on Whitney's lap during a talk show interview, whatever. They loved to bring her up on stage and present her to the world. You know what I mean? Typically, it was Whitney who would bring her up on, like a like a like an award show acceptance speech or something and, you know, maybe she would sing a song or something with her and then Bobby would, like, stand on stage off to the side, sort of bobbing his head to them singing or whatever because... You know, Bobby has to feel like a man or whatever. And sometimes they would occasionally, yeah, they would force her to like sing, which was always like, you know, adorable and cute because Bobby Christina was such a cute kid, but at the same time was like very, very sad and very uncomfortable and depressing. You know, there was nothing more depressing than watching Bobby Christina clutch onto her mom's legs on a stage and just look out into the audience with, like, the most vulnerable terror I feel like I've ever seen in my life. I think Whitney and Bobby always wanted a show kid, you know what I mean? Because they were show kids. That's all they had ever known. Bobby Brown started a band at 11 years old. Whitney Houston was the voice of a generation as a 16-year-old girl at a church in Newark. Like, They were show kids. And I think they expected that they would give birth to a show kid, you know, a little like Miley Cyrus who would go on fucking Jay Leno or whatever at three years old and give Gerber baby eyes or whatever to the audience. But what they got was a very shy, reclusive little girl who just wanted the same amount of attention everybody else seemed to get from her mom. And the even more sad thing is that it really genuinely, in her heart, it was not exploitative in any way. It truly, in her heart, you could tell, just made Whitney so happy to show the world her daughter. Like, she just loved Bobby Christina so much that it was the equivalent of her opening up her wallet and showing the person at the DMV, you know, all the pictures of her kids because she didn't have that. So it's like... Her version of doing that is to bring her daughter on stage during the Grammys when she's winning Artist of the year. The other really sad thing about Bobby Christina's life that I want to touch on before we end this episode is that Bobby Christina was born into a tabloid narrative. Like her literal, the event of her birth was nothing more to most people than a chapter in, like, a 30-year-long tabloid story. So naturally, when she got old enough, her own life became a tabloid story because it was literally all she had ever known. The chaos and the highs and the lows of, like, being stalked by paparazzi and having her pictures taken and, you know, being on the cover of Star Magazine every week, that was her life since she was born. And personally, I don't think they could have chosen a worse time to have a child because she was already so busy, but she had no idea how drastically her life was about to change because of the bodyguard, which meant even less time with her child. So, you know, she had Bobby Christina at this sort of peak career moment where she probably was the most run down and manipulated and, you know, pulled in a million directions she had ever been. She also had a child at that exact same time. Um, I think we're going to end the episode here. I think that this is a good place to end next week. Uh, we are going to talk about the waiting to exhale period of Whitney's life. Um, the acceptance of her being like, you know what? I'm a drug addict. I'm going to go to rehab. Um, we're going to talk about her overdose, which happened in 1995. We're going to do all the things. Um, what I'm going to do right now is uncloak myself from these fabrics that I'm surrounded by. I am going to run over to my air conditioner and turn it the fuck on. I love you beyond words. I am so, so, so excited for next week. I'm so excited to keep doing this. Um, I think that I've mentioned this to you guys at some point, but I've already kind of been like throwing feelers out to people and if you're interested you should message me because I'm like down for this but I think bonus uh bonus content for the next couple months is going to be being Bobby Brown I think that I'm gonna simultaneously be watching being Bobby Brown while I do this and just slowly bringing people in to discuss episodes with me, or if not, we'll just do them alone, um, and yeah, I'm gonna have Princess on, I actually just recorded an episode of, uh, her podcast with her today, actually, um, and that was super fun, I'm not gonna, like, oh wait, no, she's doing a whole thing, she's doing Growing Up Gotti right now, and you guys know that, because she's on episode eight, so I got to watch Growing Up Gotti, and, uh, record with Princess, which is self, also self-care, Um, princess is going to be coming on i'm going to obviously have liz bentley on it's going to be fun anyway i want to stop recording i love you guys very much i will see you next week thank you for being so cool about this episode being delayed and uh bye i'll see you next friday hopefully (laughs) thank you for listening to dunzo this podcast is a part of the solid listen network please take a moment to rate review and subscribe if you haven't already also be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash solidlisten for exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McEady, and you can follow the podcast on all forms of social media at DunzoPod. That's D-U-N-Z-O. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew.